Okay, let's go to um, the storm scene. So, um, probably 7 through 12. Yeah. Um, missing the lady. I guess living by night, would that be it? Let's try that. How far into it are we? Oh, that's right where we were. Um, okay, it just 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 leave it be. Okay, obviously we're it would no, I mean let it play until it gets to where where um, we want. Um, my great idea of going through the whole movie is an idea that fate has subscribed not to, to quote Paradise Lost. Um, because there just isn't time. Um, it would be worth it. It would be great if there were worlds enough in time, but there isn't. Uh, but what I want us to do is look at a couple more scenes in Out of the Past, um, and then we will move on. Um, so we're going to start um, a little bit after this. So why don't you pause it here, because I want to say a couple of things first. So tonight is Rear Window. Um, and as you're watching Rear Window, how many people have seen it at some point? Um, how many people have seen any Hitchcock? Um, which would include those of you who've seen Rear Window, just in case you didn't realize um, it was a Hitchcock. Okay, so one thing about a Hitchcock, as everybody knows, but it's still worth mentioning, um, partly in the context of um, the reading for this week, is that he appears in pretty much all his movies. Um, this is not... This is not a rule without exceptions, but it's about as close to an exceptionalist rule as you can find, um, especially after around 1932 or so. He um, first appeared in a movie because he needed another extra. Um, and um, then it became a thing, and then it became a thing that was also a pain because what would happen is people would wait to see where Hitchcock appeared, and they wouldn't be paying attention to other stuff because they'd be saying, wait, there he is, no, there he is. Um, so late, as you get later in his career, you'll tend to find him appearing earlier, but his appearances are sometimes extremely clever. Anyone see Rope? Um, so do you remember where he appears in Rope? Do you? Um, He's on the street at the very beginning, but there's also he appears as as you know the famous Hitchcock silhouette that he um, it's if you ever saw Alfred Hitchcock um, presents there's a silhouette of him with his um, orotund belly and then he walks right into it. Um, that was a Christmas card he did once that then became his kind of signature. In Rope, if you look out the window, there's also a neon sign that has that silhouette in it as part of the um, cityscape of New York. Um, anyone know where he appears in... Um, uh, well, th there are several plays that he... That, uh, several movies that he does that are based on plays, which means it's hard to get more people into them, but he also appears very interestingly in Dial M for Murder. Where? Isn't he in a picture? Yeah, he's in a photograph um, of Ray Milland and the other people, and they're at school, or they're at a dinner party, and Hitchcock is one of the people sitting around. So he's in a picture of a picture. How platonic. 
um, that is the imitation of an imitation. Um, the same is true of Lifeboat, which all takes place in the very restricted confines of a lifeboat. Um, but at one point, they're, they're looking at a newspaper for the hundredth time, and there's a photograph in the newspaper that has Hitchcock in it. It's worth noticing where he appears in this movie in um, Rear Window. Does anyone know? Where? Winding up the clock. So there's probably some just very slight chance that Marclay wanting you to look for clocks is also when, when there's so much else going on in the scenes, but that's what you're looking for. Um, it's a little bit like looking for Hitchcock in a Hitchcock movie. Um, just a little bit, but I thought I would say that. Because, yeah, he's winding up the clock. So if you look for the clock, there he is. Um, he likes to appear, I'm just going to say this even though it's a ridiculous exaggeration, um, he likes to appear as someone who is making you nervous about time, which is why he's winding up the clock in Rear Window. So notice when he does that. Notice when he wind, um, winds up the clock. Anyone know where he appears in Vertigo? Uh, excuse me, not in Vertigo, in, um, in Notorious. So in Notorious, we're very, very anxious about whether they're going to run out of alcohol at the party because if they run out of alcohol, they're going to go down into the wine cellar where they are going to find our hero and be very angry at him. Um, so we're watching Cary Grant in the wine cellar looking for the MacGuffin. The MacGuffin, anyone know what it is in Notorious? It's uranium. Um, it's 1945. Hitchcock is making um, this movie before um, August of 1945. And he says to himself and his friends, he lied about this later, but at the time he thought, okay, let's just imagine um, that there's some substance that um, can be of no interest whatever. Let's just look at the periodic table. Oh, uranium. Um, and then the FBI interviewed him when the movie came out. They wanted to know, what do you know and what are you doing? Um, so uranium was a MacGuffin that turns out in real life not to be a MacGuffin. Um, so Cary Grant is noticing all the uranium in the wine cellar and figuring out what's that, that the um, dastardly people are doing dastardly things, and the dastardly people are going to catch him in the wine cellar if they have to go down to the wine cellar to get more wine. So we then cut to the party. We're cutting back and forth between the party and the wine cellar. And at the party, we're watching the wine slowly disappearing. So the disappearance of the wine is a kind of clock in the movie. It's a ticking bomb. And who should come to have himself a few drinks and make the wine disappear that much more quickly but Hitchcock. Yeah, making us anxious about how fast the time is going. So just notice when he appears in Rear Window, but mainly notice um, the extent to which Rear Window is in part something that Hitchcock is always interested in, which is looking from a distance through a window at what people are doing. Um, that's why people talk about Hitchcock as a voyeuristic filmmaker. All filmmakers are in some sense voyeuristic filmmakers, but um, Rear Window is very much a film about a voyeur um, that is um, Jimmy Stewart in his apartment looking at everyone else. As you're watching it, notice that um, it, like um, Dial M for Murder, like Lifeboat, like Rope, um, it seems very much to be a kind of movie that looks like it was originally a play. Um, notice it couldn't have been a play. 
um, and ask yourself why as you watch it. What prevents, what prevents um, this play-like movie from actually um, being able to be staged in anything like the way it's done on film? Um, it's not at all easy to think. It looks easy, but then turns out not to be easy to think about how you would transpose this movie into a play. Yeah. I was curious about that, and I looked it up, and apparently someone's trying to do it. Is trying to do it now? Adapted, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, want, I mean, they'll, they'll have to monkey around a lot. Um, there was a play, The 39 Steps, which apparently didn't do so well, but that's at least doable. Um, so, yeah, so it's, it's worth thinking about. Um, think also about Plato's Allegory of the Cave um, as you're watching it, and we'll talk more about that on Thursday. But in particular, um, the question of um, seeing well in the dark and seeing well um, when the light is bright and how those things interact with each other in rear window. Um, so those are, those are all um, things to keep in mind. Ask yourself what the MacGuffin is or what the MacGuffins are. Um, and, um, but, but keep some of those questions in mind. Okay, what I think we'll do now is watch um, at least two more scenes um, from out of the past, but at that point uh, we'll probably have to stop um, and go on. Um, but at least these two scenes, um, partly for what they're doing, one for its um, really incredible cinematography, one of the great um, set pieces of cinematography in the history of American film, um, and the other for um, some of the stuff we were talking about before, about how continuity and discontinuity interact in movies um, to give you a sense of narrative. The parts of narrative that get skipped are the parts where also that skipping is itself underlined by the narrative. Um, so this is the, about to be the first time she says uh, that they don't um, split up at the end of the evening. So why don't we start here? and maybe turn up the volume. She's surprised by that. I hate him. I'm sorry he didn't die. Give him time. <laughs> you that, are taking me That's back. a foreshadowing. There's no hurry. I could have run away last night. I'd find you. Yes, I believe you would. You're glad you did? I don't know. There was a little business, about $40,000. I didn't take it. How did you know it was taken? It's what you meant. 
I don't want anything of his or any part of him. Except his life. I didn't know what I was doing. I, I didn't know anything except how much I hated him. But I didn't take anything. I didn't, Jenny. Baby, I don't care. One of the most famous lines in the movie, Baby, I don't care. I never saw her in the daytime. She seemed to live by night. But was left of the day went away like a pack of cigarettes you smoked. I didn't know where she lived. I never followed her. All I ever had to go on was a place and time to see her again. I don't know what we were waiting for. Maybe we thought the world would end. Maybe we thought it was a dream and we'd wake up with a hangover in Niagara Falls. I wired with, but I didn't tell him. Why Niagara I'm Falls? I'm an said, I wish you were here. And every night I went to meet her. Niagara Falls is where you go for the traditional honeymoon up? spot in movies. What stopped so her from taking a the boat idea is they would get, they would wake up Nothing. after getting married and How big a chunk can you get to be? I was finding out. And then she'd come along like school was out. And everything else was just a stone you sailed at the sea. I didn't know you were so little. I'm taller than Napoleon. You're prettier, too. Did you miss me? No more than I would my eyes. Where should we go tonight? Let's go to my place. So that this is the first night they're going to spend together. It was the first time she had mentioned her place or going there. Maybe she decided something, or it was because the sky looked full of rain. So the sky is full of rain. And they're very wet. It was a nice little joint with bamboo furniture and Mexican gym cracks. One little lamp burned. It was all right, and the rain hammering like that on the window made it good to be in there. Yeah. Hey, not so hard. So she puts on the record, and we hear the music. No, I don't. Record no, see, it's oh, oh, God. oh no, it's so hard. Get up, my Hush. Hand. That'll dry your hair. goes from diegetic to non-diegetic. That is, did you hear the swelling of the music? The lamp falls down. The door blows open. This is all symbolic of things happening. Um, the music starts swelling, and it's non-diegetic. Okay, keep going. Okay. You going with me? Wherever it takes. Okay, so um, what it looks like happens, at least if you're trying to sell this to the people um, who are who are um, deciding whether it passes muster with the production code, is that the lamp falls down, the door opens, we notice the storm outside, uh, we come back inside, he closes the door, and no time has passed. Um, how do we know the time has passed, though? Say it again. Are they in different clothes? Um, yeah, they're in different clothes. They're dry, um, but maybe they were just toweling each other off. What else has happened? 
Yeah. The record is finished. Yeah. So here. Bye. Um, Make a life for ourselves. Get away from. So let's go to where she puts the record on. Back to that again, just so you see how it happens. It's the intervention of the other music. Okay. That's yeah. Go ahead. That's fine. Well, it was because the sky looked full of rain. So, non diegetic. <laughs> Still non diegetic music. It was a nice little joint with bamboo furniture and Mexican gym cracks. The music silences as he does voiceover. It was all right, and the rain hammering like that on the window made it good to be in there. Hey, that's so hard. <coughs> Not yours. No, Joe, please, it's all right. Oh, come Oh, on. no, that's so hard. Yes, that's my Hush. Hand. That'll dry your hair. So there's a cut to the outside. It's not without transition, then it's back to the movie music, I mean the diegetic music, the record music. You're going with me? Where? Wherever it takes us. Why? To make a life for ourselves. Okay, to get away so from the, again, a little bit of technology that you should probably know that's implicit there is obviously she doesn't put the record on, dry her hair, and, put, and turn the record off. That's just not a thing people do. Um, if you put a record on, you listen to it. Um, the, what she's expressing and what's clear to people at the time, although I think it's probably lost for us now, is that um, records tended to be on repeat a lot. That is that what would happen with this kind of record player is when the tone arm got to the end, um, it would frequently, depending on how you set it, the tone arm would go back to the beginning of the record and play it again. Um, and so the implication here is that the record has been repeating, um, which is why she stops it there. It's not the first time through on that record. And for an original audience, they would get that right away. I think that's hard for a um, 21st century audience um, to get. But just like putting your, um, your iPhone on repeat once or repeat all, that's what the record player <coughs> is doing. So what you get the sense is that not only is the record played all the way through, but she's stopping it the way people stop records when they're hearing it too many times, when it's been repeated too many times. Um, so you all have that experience with your, with your um, MP3 players. Um, that's, the, that's very clearly the experience there. So that means the record is played through. It's gone back to the beginning. It's playing through again. She's stopping it. And now they're having a conversation, which is much more business-like than the conversation that they were having before the door blew open and then shut, which suggests that, um, as Flight of the Concords puts it, business time is over, <laughs> and now it's business time. Um, because recycling is also important. Um, so, okay, let's go. Then the other scene I really wanted to show you is um, the scene in San Francisco. Um, so why don't you cue it up? Um, did people, did anyone have trouble following the plot of um, Out of the Past? So only one person is copying to having trouble following it. Um, 
All right, three people, good. Um, Roger Ebert, who seems never to have seen a movie twice, which um, is partly a tribute to his genius and his, absorb, his, his abilities to absorb a movie, but is also a problem. Yeah, let's go, th so after Eels has been killed, um, and he goes back to um, Meta um, Carson's apartment um, to see what's going on, start searching it. So let me, so Ebert, um, when he talks about this movie, says, yeah, the stuff in San Francisco, I don't really get what's happening there. It doesn't really matter. The plot doesn't make sense. In fact, I think it's really tightly plotted, and um, Ebert would have done well um, to have seen it twice, which I don't think he ever did. Um, but the, um, so essentially what happens is he's sent to San Francisco to try to get the MacGuffin, which consists of the tax records that would screw Wit up. So it's killing two birds with one stone. Um, that is, Wit will get the tax records from Eels. And um, Jeff, who doesn't see what the frame is, he's trying to figure out what the frame is, is going to get hit with the rap for killing Eels. Um, so he goes to Eels' apartment, where he's supposed to be um, Meta's um, cousin. Um, Eels has that great line where he says, uh, your, your cousin is a very charming girl, and he replies, no, he's not. <laughs> um, he, he's a, a bookie in Cleveland. Um, but he realizes he's supposed to leave his fingerprints there, um, which means that he's being framed, which means that Eels is in trouble. Um, that is, what's he being framed for if he's supposed to be leaving his fingerprints in Eels' apartment? It can only be for the murder of Eels. Um, Eels also has an affidavit. This is what he finds out um, when he is dropped off at Witt's house. Eels also has an affidavit um, from Kathy saying that Kathy has killed Fisher. His, I mean, saying that he has killed Fisher, his partner. Um, Kathy killed Fisher, but Eels has an affidavit saying that Kathy has signed, saying that he has killed Fisher. Um, and he needs that affidavit. So there are two documents that Eels has. One is a document that Witt really wants, which is all the tax records, and the other is a document that Jeff really wants, which is the affidavit um, um, implicating him in the death of Fisher. Um, this is one of many, many ways that um, Jeff and Wit are made into kind of twin characters. Each needs a document that Eels has, and each um, also knows that Eels has another document that will implicate the other one. And of course, the main um, parallel between Jeff and Wit is one woman. Um, as the um, um, promotional material for the movie The Saints <coughs> Tale, anyone ever see it? Came out about nine years ago. Uh, the promotional copy for it was two guys, one girl, you do the math. Um, but that's true here, too. So two guys, two girls, but only one who's really interesting, um, because Anne just isn't. Um, you do the math. You know, she later did Folger's Coffee commercials. Um, you played Anne. You can find them on YouTube. Um, she's Mrs. Uh, 
can't remember her name. It's a, it's a Danish name, and she is always advising young brides on how to make coffee um, good enough that their husbands won't complain. Um, so um, it's important. Um, so when he cuts back to Eels' apartment, he gets back too late. Eels is dead. Who's killed him? Joe. Joe. Um, we don't know that yet, but Joe has killed him. Um, and um, now there's the question: How is he going to get? Um, how is he going to get the um, affidavit? And also, how is he going to get um, the um, the tax records? He does get them, and now suddenly he has the records that everyone is after. Um, he figures this out by going to uh, Meta's apartment, not this time, but after he finds out that Eels is dead. So. Um, yeah, I guess we can start here. So this is Eels' office building. Right below Eels, there's a detective agency. If you looked at the board carefully, you would see that one of the offices of the office building is a detective agency. There's Meta. She's gotten all the stuff from Eels' office. Follow up, Edie, then wait for me at Eels' apartment house. Okay, here he figures out that Eels is dead. Let's go forward one chapter. Now he's back at Meta's uh, house where there's a party. He's a detective, so locks mean nothing. And then just this is where the most spectacular cinematography of the movie starts and it's all spectacular um, but this scene notice that the lights here aren't that amazing but the light sources are going to get more and more interesting as we go through this scene so notice the shadow the big phone in front all the lights, or a huge number of lights, are coming from below. The floor of the set is littered with spots. Now he's hiding because the phone is ringing, which means someone will come answer it. Stop right there. So, how many people recognized immediately that that was Kathy? I think most people, in my experience, and certainly the first time I saw it, saw it think that it's Meta coming in, especially since she's about to identify herself as Meta. Her hair is done in a different way, and she's wearing earrings, which is unexpected. So I think there's a little bit of confusion here, and it's intentional confusion. We're not supposed to recognize, I don't think, that it's Kathy right away, um, but um, when we do recognize her, um, that is yet another stirring of the pot. Okay. So he's watching all this. 
Mr. Tillerson. This is Mr. Eel's secretary. I'm worried about Mr. Eels. I know he's home, but he doesn't answer his phone. Would you go up and see if he's all right? Maybe he went out. No, he was to wait for my call. I don't want to be a nuisance, but I'm sure he's there, and I'm worried. Would you call me right back? Okay, can you pause it for a second? Fillmore, 071. So, uh, one question is, so who was calling? That is, the phone rings. When phones ring, as we know from uh, telephones, the first Chris Markley movie we saw, they matter. So the phone rings, he ducks out of the way, um, either he hears her coming or realizes someone is going to come. Um, yeah. Joe? Presumably, although we don't know it yet, presumably it's Joe. Um, but we don't know. But there's something really interesting about the fact, psychologically interesting, not thematically interesting. This is one of the things that um, Badiou, among others, is talking about, is how much in movies that um, um, occur simply because of the efficiency of exposition um, can sometimes transcend themselves into something that, that as Badiou puts it, feels like art. That is that all the other arts were afraid that we're not going to be able to stay up um, at the level required um, to have an aesthetic appreciation of them. Whereas with film, the, the vector is the other way. We're watching a film and suddenly for whatever accidental, semi-accidental, semi-purposive or purposive reason, something that had seemed random suddenly becomes something great, something that really works. An example of that, just to tell you in um, Out of the Past, is, since we talked about him already, what um, the kid is doing in the movie, um, why he's there, why do we have a deaf and dumb kid who can read lips but whose lip reading um, is of almost no um, contribution to the plot, whose deafness and dumbness is of almost no contribution to the plot. Clearly it works thematically. It works really well thematically. That is, what we have is um, the question of hearing versus seeing versus who is hearing and who's seeing and what they're hearing and seeing. It's almost as though he's saying, this is an issue in this movie. Originally, he was supposed to be telling the whole story of the movie. So in um, an earlier version of the movie, he's actually the voiceover that tells the whole story. And that's a kind of nifty idea that a deaf and dumb character should tell the story of the movie. It's an idea you could say on the same page as what happens in Sunset Boulevard. Anyone seen it? Um, who's the narrator of that movie? The Dead Guy, or also an American Beauty, also narrated by the Dead Guy. So there's um, an interesting play with representation when someone who couldn't be the narrator in real life is the narrator in the interposition in, at the boundary between our world and the world of the movie. Someone who in real life is either dead or dumb um, and couldn't narrate the movie in our world, that person can be the narrator. So um, filmmakers are interested in that. Um, obviously, voiceover is important to this movie, um, partly because if you think about it, if you consider it, there is no way a suave, um, charismatic male lead like Jeff would be telling the story as he tells it to Anne. 
That is, it's fine for him to say, yeah, I met her, I was sent after her, um, I saw her come in. But then he starts talking about how beautiful she is, and then how great the sex is, and how wonderful it is to spend every night with her. Just imagine that he's actually telling this to her, what we're getting on voiceover. That's the official reason that, he's, that we have his voiceover. But we forget that she's the listener. And if we don't forget that she's the listener, he just sounds like an amazing cat. Like, well, you know, I'm really glad to be here with you, and it's kind of fun to sit in the woods and have you try to light my cigarette. Um, but, oh, man, Kathy, now that was incredible. Um, and if we don't forget that he's telling Anne the story, he's going to come off as a completely different kind of character. Um, so the kid was supposed to be telling the story. Um, it didn't work. It simply didn't work. It seemed like a good idea at the time. It turned out not to be a good idea. Um, now, I think what's happening with the phone is something a little bit similar, which is that, yeah, we can figure out it's probably Joe, or we may more likely forget that we were wondering who was calling and why or whether it was important. Um, but what, it, what we really get from that phone is that she hasn't tried to call Eels. That is, that if she were being very careful, if this were, if she were trying to give a realistic um, performance, if she, Kathy, not she, Jane Greer, were trying to give a realistic performance of what happened, she would have called Eels' apartment, gotten no answer, said, yes, good, um, he must be dead, um, and then called the landlord. Um, or the, the superintendent, but she doesn't do that. But what we sort of get a sense of is an unanswered phone, and then she makes a call saying no one is picking up. And we've seen that happen, a phone ring and not get picked up. And what we do kind of psychologically is we just remember that category. A phone <coughs> rings, isn't picked up, and now she's saying that to the superintendent. And as it, as the as the idea kind of evaporates from short-term memory, there's a kind of coherence in the storytelling that isn't a real-world coherence, but it's a set of objects. It's a coherence of a set of objects. Um, she says the phone number is Fillmore something. Um, Fillmore, um, do you know why she says Fillmore? It's the beginning of the phone number. This is also knowledge that is, that is near forgotten. But do you know how you did phone numbers up until the 1960s? Yes. It wasn't area code, it's called exchange. So what you would do um, through, starting in the 1950s, phone numbers, local phone numbers were seven digits, the way they are now. So, you know, 781-736-5000 or whatever. Um, but you didn't have to dial the area code, you just, you just dialed the seven digits if you were calling someone in the same locality as you. As I mentioned, it's like at Brandeis if you just dial a five-digit number instead of a ten-digit number to get someone else at Brandeis. The exchanges were pegged to neighborhoods. So you would actually pay more if you were calling out of your own neighborhood. Um, so, so phone calls were cheapest if you called within your own neighborhood. Um, if you called across town, they'd be more expensive. And you would know what neighborhood you were calling because the first three digits, or the first two digits of a phone number, would actually be assigned to particular neighborhoods. Um, and you would know because they would be words. 
So you would call um, Murray Hill 6 3222 if you lived in New York City, and that would mean you were calling the Murray Hill neighborhood down in, um, on, in the East 30s. Or you would call to use the title of a movie starring Elizabeth Taylor for which you won an Oscar. Anyone know what you won an Oscar for? Butterfield 8. So Butterfield 8 are the first three digits of a phone number. Um, Artie Shaw number um, called Pennsylvania 65000. That's the phone number of the Pennsylvania Hotel at Pennsylvania Station. So you need to know, it matters, um, just to get the cultural background at the time, you need to know that um, the way you made calls was you gave the name, which would actually give you the first two letters. You know how, the, how um, digits on phones are A, B, C, D, E, F, and so on? The first two letters of the exchange gave you the first two digits of a phone number. So now she's, she's calling a phone number, Fillmore whatever, the first two digits are FI. Actually, go back a little bit because it may. No, it isn't. So FI was going to be four five. Never mind. Just, yeah, so it's gone from there. Yes, Ms. Carson, right away. <clears throat> so we may still think it's, it's uh, made a car um, Carson at that point. I love this guy. Um, he's very vivid because we're going to see him again. Now he's watching her, and just look at all the light sources and all the shadows. She's going to leave the fridge open, more light. <coughs> Cigarette, of course. So now we know it's her for Did sure. Did you go in the apartment? Yeah. But he must be there. Thank you. <coughs> so now she's calling Joe. <coughs> Joe Stefano Street. Yeah, here. Then leave work for him to call Miss Carson's apartment right away. So that's, um, we'll find out that where she's calling now is Wits Club. That's why he's not there. She expected him to be there. Is there a slip up, baby? Her expression there is amazing. Do you by any chance send your friend up there to find Leo's dead? No, Jeff. Tell me. Tell me. Don't, Jeff. Don't run. I don't want to die. You're going to lie, maybe, but if I have to, I'm going to die last. Something slipped up, didn't it? They told you they were going to knock him off, and they haven't done it, have they? <coughs> they haven't because I tipped him off. He blew. He's all right. Didn't you want him to be? Yes. Yes, because if he died, they'll say you did it. Oh, you're wonderful, Kathy. You're magnificent. You can change size so smooth. No, Jeff, you're hurting me. I'm almost getting it. Very pretty. Vic wants to get eels out of the picture. He wants to square an old account with me. Two birds together. So I come to town with an address. A redhead takes me up to visit the chump who has to go. I have a drink, leave my prince around. I leave and somebody gets it. Eels dies. The tax papers, they were in a briefcase that Mita took with me. Papers go back to Wick. I'm the floor guy. There's only one thing missing, the plant. What was that to give me a motive? I wouldn't kill a guy for a martini. Tell me, Kathy. They may be signed. Sign what? An affidavit. Go on. I couldn't. 
couldn't help it, Jeff. They made me sign it. I swear I couldn't help it. They said they'd find the body and tell the police I killed him. Fish. And you did tell them about Fish. When you told them I did. Good. Old proof and beautiful. And what can really hate, can he? You said it once, he can remember. I never stopped hating him, Jeff. I couldn't help myself. I was caught too. We don't have to. So this especially is what people love. Notice the outline of light. That this is going to be held for quite a while. The outline of light that gives you his silhouette, his nose, his eyelashes, all the way down here, and her lighting from back there. And just look at the light. Look at the composition of these, of these, of these shots, of the shots in this scene. Against each other now. Probably. No, we can break out of it. All we need is a briefcase. And we've got them, Jeff. We can get anything we want from them. I'd like that affidavit you signed. We can get it. It's in Neil's office safe. We can make me to get it. We can make them do anything. Sure. Oh, Jeff, you ought to have killed me for what I did a moment ago. There's time. No, you won't. I've never stopped loving you. I was afraid of no good, but I've never stopped. Joe at the door. Um, I guess we should stop there. What time is it? Okay, we're not too badly time-wise. Um, all right, then, so I just hope you saw how beautiful that was. It's, uh, the more you see it, uh, the more amazing it seems. Um, why don't we turn the lights on? Thanks. So there's still the question, who's playing whom and how much? So what do you guys think? So the story now is that he loves Anne. He is trying to get out of the frame that Wit and, to some extent, Kathy are hanging on him. Um, Kathy, does she love him? Is that true what she says now? When she's glad that Eels isn't dead? and that they're going to be able to get the um, affidavit and run away? Is that her plan? Is that what she wants? What? So someone said no? Yes. And why would that be? Why do you say that? Well, she just always she seems like she's conning everyone, you know, whichever way the wind is blowing. Uh-huh. Um, and both are documents incriminating the men that she's been conning. So I don't quite understand what her game is, but it seems to revolve around screwing over both of them. Okay, or at least um, having power over both of them. Yeah. Um, what was her game when she thought it was working? That is, she's calling up, she's, she now wants Eels' body found, 
um, she has to reassess everything when his body isn't found, and then um, Jeff shows up. What would have happened if his body had been found? What was the plan? What did she think would happen? Anyone. Jeff goes to jail. Yeah. And I, I had the impression that the idea was that she'd get back together with Wit. Uh huh, as she already has. Right. So the thing about Wit, this is another thing to notice about this movie is how much, it's not only that Jeff and Wit are um, twinned characters, but the extent to which um, people keep changing positions in the structure in this movie. So, Wit hires Jeff to find her. That is, um, Jeff has made the instrument to find um, Kathy. Now, Wit is using Kathy, because, because Wit is angry at Kathy for injuring him. Um, now, Wit is using Kathy to get Jeff. So, they've kind of switched positions in the, in the way that um, Wit is using one as a cat's paw to get the other. Um, so halfway through the movie, they switch positions. Now Wit is using um, Kathy to get Jeff before Wit had been using Jeff to get Kathy. Um, Kathy is, wants to control both of them. And once she gets the documents, she will be able to control both of them. And what she sees at this point is an opportunity. Um, the opportunity is for her to get the documents. Um, eventually, the result is she kills Wit. Um, and when she kills Wit, the interesting thing is that Jeff now has nothing on her. Because Jeff, in the last act of the movie, is using Wit as an instrument to control her. That is, Jeff can blackmail Wit and because he can blackmail Wit, and because Wit can determine what she does, um, Jeff is using Wit to control her. So again, they've switched positions. Now Jeff is the one in control, Wit is his instrument, and Kathy is his objective. So in this movie, what you'll see is there are these three main characters who kind of do a dance, do um, um, a circulation where they move from the position of controller to instrument to object controlled. And um, they will all be in, that, in those positions at some point during the movie. Um, it's also interesting to notice if you look at the last scene, which we're not going to now, or the, the last scene in the Tahoe house, um, that the opening relationship between Wit and Jeff is that Jeff listens and Wit talks. At the end of the movie, Wit is silent and Jeff is talking. And he keeps saying, no, let me, let me keep talking. And he makes Wit listen. He becomes the person who does the talking. So that structure, the kind of um, scenic structure, the structure of um, relationship within the scene is studiously um, mirrored as characters move about in the structure. Um, you get the same structure, but characters filling different positions within that structure. Um, so, yeah, it's a great movie. Now I have um, a really good segue to... Um, let's turn this off. System off. Power down. Yep. Um, 
to La Jetée, um, that segue being that I have a really good segue to La Jetée, and I just gave it to you. Um, so, La Jetée. Uh, have people seen 12 Monkeys? Um, so, that, so if you haven't seen it, you should. Um, it's really good. It's um, basically an American science fiction version of La Jetée. Came out in 98, is that right? Do you know? Um, 96. Okay, so it's um, <coughs> Bruce Willis is um, the time traveler, and um, it's um, in the context of the Terminator movies and other time traveling movies. Um, time traveling movies are always fun. Um, they're always also um, interestingly related to the idea of movies to begin with, um, because you can always go back and forth. Um, in time in movies um, for whatever, for various reasons. Um, the cool thing, just to tell you one cool um, addition in 12 Monkeys that um, is only barely implicit in La Jetée, um, but is really neat in 12 Monkeys, <coughs> is when he returns um, in towards the end, um, he decides that he is going to tell the people in the future, he's assigned, um, I think, to kill her, right? Um, and um, so when he returns at the end and he's supposed to kill her, he decides he's not going to do it. Um, if you've seen Looper, it's, it's um, similar sorts of things. So he decides he's not going to do it. And what the people in the future have done is they have a way of communicating with the past. Uh, the way of communicating with the past is you make a phone call and you leave a message on some voicemail. And 30 years in the future, the villains of the future, um, those who are running our hero, will pick up that voicemail. So it'll just be there for 30 years. 30 years later, they'll listen to the voicemail. And what they'll hear is Bruce Willis saying, no, I'm not going to kill her. So it takes them 30 years to get that message, which gives them a lot of time to escape, right? No, because they can time travel. So 30 years later, they get the message, and they immediately um, send someone back 30 years. So instantaneously, he leaves the message, and they intervene instantaneously, because even though it takes them 30 years to get the message, um, they can erase those 30 years by sending someone back in time. Um, so instantaneously, a villain comes back um, to mess up Bruce Willis's plan. So for a second, we think, all right, 30 years, plenty of time for them to escape, but it turns out the 30 years is nothing in movie time. Um, so does, uh, did people follow the story of La Chetée? It's not that hard, but it's, it's sufficiently interesting and sufficiently complicated. Someone want to... Um, do a very quick plot summary. I know you do. No, I'm not. What? No, I know. Um, the woman in front of you was. Oh, okay. No, no, I mean you. Go ahead. All right. Now I mean you. Well, there's sort of this dystopian future in which they're trying to create a world that you can live in where you live in your own thoughts. So they need someone with really strong mental imagery. So they pick this guy who has this image of a man dying. Um, and he kind of goes back in time and encounters this old love interest who's very mysterious, it's all ambiguous, and then he watches himself die, the man turns out to be him, and sort of this weird future that they create. Okay, so sort of yes, sort of no. Um, 
so it, it probably is worth, worth um, going over. So when he's a child, uh, so what happens is there's World War III. Paris is destroyed. The world is destroyed. Um, this is on everyone's mind at the beginning of the nuclear age and the Cold War. Um, but before that happens, as a child, he see, his mother takes him to see the planes taking off and landing at Orly. And um, one day he sees a woman um, who is very um, fascinating to him, and she turns to see a man who is um, approaching her, um, and um, she's joyful to see him, and then the man gets shot. And that scene for him is a scene that he never forgets. It's imprinted on his memory extremely strongly. Then the war comes, and um, almost everyone is killed. But there are some underground people um, who, with the skills of um, survivors, are living in the catacombs under Paris, um, eating rats, running out of possibilities, and worrying about um, the end of the human race. Um, but they're doing all sorts of experiments the um, illusion in the experiments is a little bit, you're supposed to think a little bit about Nazi death camp experiments. That is, here is, we're, we're in the midst of the aftermath of a world war in, in which most of humanity has been killed. Um, there are um, figures of authority, of very cruel authority, who are doing experiments um, which might have scientific truth behind them, but are also horrendous. Um, that's about as much as you're supposed to be remembering of the Nazis, but they're also whispering in German. Um, one of the things that's going on in La Jete is that um, you have, um, the movie is almost entirely done in stills, um, although there's motion over the stills. Do people know how to tell that? Um, that is, how do you know when you're panning, let's say, over a landscape? How do you know that what you're, what you're seeing is a photograph rather than an actual landscape? Do you know how to tell the difference? Yeah. When you're panning in the landscape, it sort of looks like, like, sort of like a circle. When you're panning in a photograph, it really just looks flat. Okay, so it looks flat, and it looks flat um, for one reason. Because if you're actually moving a camera now parallel to a landscape, so it's not actually panning, but if you move a camera parallel to a landscape, what happens is the foreground moves more than the background. Did Everyone realizes this? Just think of being in a train or being in a car and watching the trees right next to the road and looking at um, a building behind the trees. So the trees just go flying by you but the building seems, its apparent motion is slower than the motion of the trees, right? This is an obvious thing. So if you're moving across a landscape, if you're moving across a photograph, what happens is everything is the same distance from the camera. And so if there's a tree in the foreground and let's say a moon in the background, and it's a photograph of a moon behind a tree, as you, um, as you move the camera over the surface of the photo, the moon will move just as fast as the tree. 
And in particular, you won't see the moon from one side of the tree, and then after the camera moves, you'll see the moon on the other side of the tree the way you would, you would in real life. So the way you know that you're seeing a flat surface when there's motion parallel to the surface is the relationship of objects doesn't change. The relationship of objects always stays the same. If the relationship of objects is changing, then you know that you're not simply seeing a planar surface. So a background in a movie could just be um, a backdrop, could just be a photograph, as long as the camera isn't moving with respect to the backdrop. Um, what's that movie based on a video game, um, which is uh, it's, sci it's a science fiction western, that is, it uh, came out like five years ago. Um, yes, yeah, yeah. Um, so in Cowboys and Aliens, actually, the um, CGI kind of sucks at the beginning. And you can tell that um, they didn't put in the computer power um, to do the background right. Um, and at first, when I was first watching it, I thought, oh, yeah, you can tell you're inside virtual reality because the background isn't changing. But it turned out you weren't supposed to be able to tell that. Um, they just didn't do a good job of it. So if you just look at the opening of Cowboys and Indians and pay attention to the background, it doesn't work. Um, so here what we get are a bunch of photographs rather than moving images. This is something that Bazin talks about. Um, what happens when photography comes on the scene? What happens when moving images, um, when photography is turned into motion? I think Bazin is, is really, really good on that, and I want us to look at that in a couple of minutes. Um, but so what happens here is that we have continuity of sound over a series of photographs where we get some motion, but the motion is motion that it's revealing a photograph to us rather than motion within the scene that we're seeing. So we're seeing motion as we pan over a photograph, but we're not seeing motion within the photograph, not even the motion of the camera. The photograph, um, we're not getting a changing view of the background. So it's very, very flat. Um, this is another case of an absolutely... Um, material production fact about the movie um, turning into art almost accidentally. Marker didn't have enough money to do a movie. Um, so basically what he did was he said, okay, we'll do it like um, a telenovela. Um, we'll just do a bunch of photographs and tell a story that way. Um, so it wasn't, he wasn't saying to himself, wow, it would be so cool and would challenge so many preconceptions about memory and reality and um, the destruction of the world and the preservation of that destroyed world and so on. If I did it as a series of stills, it was basically, nope, don't have money to make a movie. Um, I'd like to, but I'm very poor, so I'll just do it as a bunch of photos. Um, but then it works, and it works wonderfully. Um, so the reason it works is that he has a particular image in mind. So not a GIF, not a loop, not an image of a bunch of things happening which he's replaying over and over and over again, but a single image that obsesses him. And as sound passes over him, as there are washes of sound over him, as he's being experimented with um, in the underground in Paris, this image is the thing that links him to the past. This one photograph, you could say, 
which is seared into his memory. Um, here again, Marker is probably thinking of, I'll, I'll say what and you say why. So what, why, what, no. Um, he's thinking of Hiroshima, why? Why does the idea of a single unmoving image make him um, bring in the idea of Hiroshima? Yeah. Well, okay, um, so the city is frozen in time, destroyed in a second. Where's the idea of being frozen in time in Hiroshima? Where, how is that part of our cultural sense of it? Yeah. All the clocks Sorry? All the clocks stopped. All the clocks stopped. Okay, so there, there's Markley. You know, that's true of the Bologna train station now. Um, that there's a bombing that the Red Brigade did in Bologna, I think, in the late 60s, which stopped the clock, and the clock is still stopped in memory of that. What's the other even more famous thing that happened? Yeah. You can see, like, like the shadows? Yes. That is the, the intense brightness of the bomb. Um, what it did was it burned around the shadows of the people. So you can see the shadows of the, victim in stone, of the victims in stone. Um, the brightness bleached the, um, the stone, the walls, the backgrounds around them, and where there were people between the brightness of the bomb and the walls, their shadows are captured forever. So there's a very strange sense in which um, it's, and this is something that, that for Marker is a very vivid sense, that the sudden flash of the bomb was a kind of photography of its victims. They're caught in shadow on stone. Um, and that really works, that sense of a searing stillness, something just stopped forever, but seared into the imagination. That's really mattering to um, how he's thinking about memory in La Jetée. Um, later on, he does, a, he does a really interesting movie. Um, he does a lot of really interesting movies, but one really interesting movie he does is he um, looks frame by frame at some U.S. Army uh, reconnaissance um, filming of um, the people of Okinawa, of the suicides in Okinawa. So what happened was that... Um, the Japanese warned that the allies, that the Americans were going to invade Okinawa, which they were, and were going to rape all the women. And so there were um, scores or hundreds of women um, who threw themselves off the cliffs of Okinawa in order to avoid these atrocities that they were told were going to happen to them. Um, and um, the U.S. Army filmed this. That is, they were, they were, they were um, beginning the invasion, and there's a cameraman who's, who's um, taking shots of women running, this is over the water, running to the cliffs to, um, to commit suicide. And he looks at those shots frame by frame, and there's one frame which he looks at for um, more of the movie than any other frame, which is one of the women who's running to the cliff is turns as she's running and sees the camera for a second across the water. So it's the, I think it's on shipboard um, across the water. And he just freeze frames it there. And you can see her looking right at you um, as she's running to her death. And he really wants to sear that into your memory, that freeze frame. So he's really interesting and interested 
in the way time can be frozen, the way time can be stopped. So in this movie, time is frozen, time is stopped. There is this death that this man remembers from his childhood that's seared into his memory, and it's um, according to the theology of time travel, because it really is almost a theology in La Jetée, that intensely strong connection to the past is what makes him the best candidate for time travel in the experiments that they're doing. Um, so they're doing these time travel experiments because they're trying to find a way to supply themselves until the radiation disappears from the upper world and life can continue. Um, people from the future tell them that life will continue, um, and the fact that there are people from the future to tell them that makes it clear that it will, otherwise those people in the future wouldn't exist. But in the meantime, he's traveling to the past and traveling to this moment that he remembers, and what he remembers most about the moment is not the man who's killed, whom he's only seen from behind, but it's the woman who turned to the man with a look of recognition and joy um, just the instant that the man is killed. So his fixation is on that woman. And um, then he meets her. And what we have to remember, and here I just want you to have Bazin in mind, what he has to say about where representational art comes from. Um, the idea of mummies that he begins um, the first reading that you did um, from him with. Um, what we have to remember is that this woman, whom he is so, um, who is so fixed in his mind and whom he is seeing now again, is that she's dead. That is, that in the time that the movie is set, post-World War III, there are almost no survivors, and she is not one of them. So he has gone back to the past and back to a series of images in the past and in that series of stills from the past, what he sees there again is the coming to life or at least the possibility of life of someone who is dead. So whenever he returns back to the present, he's returning back to a time when she's dead when he returns to the past, he's returning to keep company with, to share time with a person he knows is dead, a person whose fate he knows, a person whose future he knows. And so, again, a really interesting thing that Marker does is he's able to use the stills in the present and the stills in the past in two fascinatingly different ways. And yet, maybe they're not so different after all. The stills in the present, the fact that we're seeing the present as a series of stills with whispering in the background and darkness and threats and people masked or at least people with instrumentation um, blocking a good view of their faces and that very high key, high contrast lighting of the stills in the present, um, that fact um, gives us a sense of the absolute poverty of the present, that everything is just a series of 
um, pointless, meaningless, frozen, unchanging um, moments in an unchanging present in the underground, in the sewers and catacombs of Paris. Nothing is happening. There's a constant murmur of whispering, in, largely in German, behind them, and nothing happening. Simply this um, stasis of the destroyed world. But then all the stills in the past are moments remembered of what was life, but only what was life, not what is life. So that's why we get them, again, as moments, as images, as postcards, you could say, from the past, rather than as motion in the past. Do you want to say something? Yeah. Uh, yeah so what's the significance of the one actual video in the movie where the woman's picking? Yeah, so the one place, which is really remarkable, where you get motion in the movie and not, does everyone remember it, where you get motion and not just a series of stills, um, the sound gets really, really loud, um, and we feel something coming to life, and then she opens her eyes. And it's as though there the intensity of a return to the past, letting that phrase mean everything it can mean, both time travel and memory, that is to say. That intensity becomes so strong, and we hear it in the soundtrack and we see it in the motion, that she actually comes to life. That it's no longer a past tense story, but a present tense story. Again, the difference between stills and motion is that any story told in stills is always past tense. That is, a photograph captures the past. When you see a photograph, you're seeing how things were. That's our response to a photograph. This is how it was at a particular instant. The photograph gives you how it was. That's not our initial response to a movie. Um, we can have that response if we think about it, and sometimes we only have to think about it for a second or two, but when we're watching um, a motion picture, when we're watching movement, what we're doing is looking at something that seems to be happening before our eyes. In a photograph, it's not happening before our eyes. It happened, and now it's before our eyes. In a film, in motion picture, we're seeing something happening before our eyes. Now, of course, we're sophisticated enough that we can, you know, look at replays of stuff that happened before, but as you know, whenever you look at a replay, if it's a replay of <coughs> some kind of disaster, some kind of um, near miss from safety, every time you watch it, you think, no, he could have grabbed it and he wouldn't have fallen. And each time you're surprised, you see him almost grabbing it and then falling. Or just if you watch a, a replay in a football game. Um, and you can't believe that the, that the guy didn't make the catch. Because there the ball was. He had it. Look, he's got it. And there it's falling out of his arms again. Um, and each time, some part of um, an initial perceptual part of our brains is thinking, this is happening and it's okay. And each time, that part of our brains is surprised when it isn't okay. So when we're seeing motion, we're seeing the present on some very basic psychological level. We're seeing the present. When we're seeing stills, when we're seeing photographs, we're seeing the past. 
And that's a crucial difference. So when she opens her eyes, it's as though he's recovered the past and made it present. It's not just that the past is really, really intense, which it is in all the shots when he goes back to see her and they're happy together. It's not only that the past is really, really intense, it's that for that moment, it becomes the present. And that's just great. And that's wonderful. Um, but it doesn't stay the present. And finally, he's given the gift of being able to return to the past, but it's not a good gift, it turns out, because he's hunted down in the past and killed. And at the last moment, he realizes that the scene that so fixated him on the past was the scene of his own death. That is, that not only has he been there as a little boy, he's now been there as um, a grown man, and he has seen his own death occur in the past. Um, but th what that means, then, is that in the present of the movie, the post-war present, they're both dead. He has already died, and she has already died. And what they therefore share, in some sense, is that they are both denizens, both citizens, both dwellers of the past and not the present. Um, but that loop is um, one where love and death come together. He gets to be with her, he falls in love with her because he's seen his own death and having seen his own death, he can go back to be with her, have the love relationship with her but the result is that it causes his own death. So the cause and the effect are in a loop. Um, Terminator does this also, of course, and there are lots of um, really interesting time travel um, stories that do this. Do people know how Terminator works? That um, Have people seen it? Huh. All right. Well, so what happens in Terminator... Story time. What happens in Terminator... <clears throat> is that um, a guy comes from the future and says, I am here to protect you, to Sarah Connor. Um, I have to protect you because um, the machines in the future are sending a Terminator um, to kill you. And the reason they want to kill you is that you will, in the future, give birth to a son who will lead the rebellion against these machines and prevent them from taking over the world. So the future is a battle between machines and humans, you know, like The Matrix, like countless other movies. The future is a battle between machines and humans. The humans have sent someone back in time to protect the mother of the person who will battle with the machines. The machines send a Terminator back in time, namely Arnold Schwarzenegger, um, who really looks like a machine, um, to kill her so that she won't give birth to a son who will um, fight the machines. The son's name is John Connor. That is, his initials are JC. That's not random. Um, he's the Jesus Christ of the future. And um, Sarah Connor, his mother, um, Sarah, as in Sarah, wife of Abraham, um, is going, needs to be protected so she lives long enough to give birth to him. And um, the guy sent back to protect her is sent back to protect her by John Connor. So John Connor is sending someone back 
in time to protect his mother so that he, John Connor, so that she'll live long enough for him to be born. Um, so, lots of action ensues, fights, atrocities, jokes, some of them not so funny, especially when Arnold tries to tell them. Um, yeah, that's true, but in two, he's a good guy. Um, and um, then the guy who sent back to the past sleeps with Sarah Connor. And guess what happens? She gets pregnant, and John Connor will then be born nine months later. Um, so the loop is that John Connor has sent someone back in time to become his father. And so if John Connor hadn't sent him back in time, he wouldn't have been born. But because he's born, he can send someone back in time to become his father. So as Wordsworth says, the child is father to the man. Um, that's a really good example of it. John Connor is in a sense his own father, or at least assigns someone to be his father so that he, John Connor, can exist. And that loop is a theological loop. That is, God gives birth to himself, you could say. Or Jesus Christ causes someone to become the father of Jesus Christ. Is she a virgin? No, but because she's um, having sex with someone from the future who's been sent by her son to have sex with her, it's a little bit like the Annunciation. Um, so that's the loop in Terminator. Okay, rear window, it's swell, and um, see you Thursday.